0: listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single origin coffees. They're committed to long-term sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, overroasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10, that's jdp 10 and you get $5 off your first purchase, do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Dimitri Kafinis, Dimitri is a technology and media entrepreneur and the host of Hidden Forces, a popular podcast dedicated to uncovering the forces, driving global events, technological innovations, market movements, and social changes. Dimitri graduated from NYU in 2004 with a dual bachelor's degree in economics and political science. Enjoy my conversation with Dimitri Kafinas. Dimitri, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you. So the first question I always ask guests is going back to 2008, uh, take us back to that time, what you were doing professionally and personally, if you want, and then take us back to that time.
1: Wow. That was a long time ago, huh? Yeah. 12 years. (laughs) I was working in application development and design, product development basically for Cablevision. And we all had, at least all of us who worked in product development, we all had televisions in our cubicles. So I probably watched a lot more CNBC in that month than I have ever before and since. Mm -hmm. I was pretty transfixed by... The political dimensions of the crisis. It wasn't inconceivable to me that we would have some type of market decline as a result of the low interest rate policies of Greenspan post 9-11 all the way down to 2003 and then just the prolonged low rate levels, the refinancing boom, the mortgage boom. I couldn't have, you know, told you everything that would have happened exactly as it happened, but it, it wasn't beyond my imagination to see that. What was, for me, shocking with the 2008 crisis was the response of government. And it took me by surprise. So that was kind of my focus during that time. I was kind of blown away. Kind of around the time of Lehman's collapse through early to middle of October, I was sort of transfixed with all of the different facilities the Fed was putting out, the bailouts, the press conferences by Paulson, Geithner, Bernanke. It was an incredible time. Yeah, and during that
0: time or in, after, in the months and years after that, were there any books or personalities that you followed to kind of research and, and read up and learn about things at all? I remember reading the Too Big to Fail book maybe a year or two after, which had a lot of detailed accounts in it, and there are other books as well I know. You know,
1: that's such a great question. It brings up a lot of memories. I was fortunate to have been plugged into the right networks ahead of the crisis, so I had done a lot of reading. I've mentioned this a number of times. There was a, an Austrian economist, Bacher, I always pronounce his name wrong, but he's a, he was a an Austrian economist, but a German, I believe. And he had a, a newsletter, and he was writing about this for years and years and years, so i was that newsletter alone gave me let's say ninety percent of the information I needed to foresee this meltdown, not necessarily all the complicated derivatives, but just the general macroeconomic picture and the business cycle and Of course, there were others i mean I, I read, for example, coming out of college and during and out of college before the crisis, I read. Things like I read George Soros' The Alchemy of Finance, The, the Crisis of Global Capitalism. Mm-hmm. I read a great book by, I can't remember now the author's name again, but it was Secrets of the Temple, which was a history of the Volcker administration, which gave me an inside look at monetary policy that I wasn't able to find elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And stuff like this. But it was pretty mainstream stuff. It, after the crisis, I started looking at a lot of like non-mainstream stuff. But there were people like Hugh Hendry, who I really liked to follow whenever he would be on television. I, I loved it. You know, there were a lot of big personalities. There were guys like Jim Rogers, who I enjoyed listening to at the time. Max Kaiser was coming on the scene then. He's uh, I don't know if you know who he is, but yeah. he had a show, he had a show on the BBC called The Oracle. BBC World, believe it or not, and he also did some stuff on Al Jazeera. And I was—I remember being so blown away by this guy at how sort of a crazy genius in the way that he talked about markets. So it was a lot of those characters that I, I actually enjoyed watching during the crisis, and I think a lot of that had to do with the cathartic aspect because I was very angry at the time with what I had seen. I felt that I had done a good job positioning myself for deflation, and then I felt that government officials were bailing out, as they were, of course, the banking system, because that's who they serve. That's who the central bank serve, first and foremost. It isn't the public, which I think the crisis was so important and and revelatory in that regard. It, through its illiquidity, revealed the structures of power in ways that you can't see normally during a boom. And uh, so those are kind of the people I was following during and before.
0: So going back to 2008, we saw the Fed's balance sheet before the crisis was around 800 billion and growing organically with open market operations, obviously. And after they injected all the liquidity over a period of years, the balance sheet grew all the way to four and a half trillion. And we can talk about present day where we are a little bit later. But during that time, there were a lot of people that said we really need to normalize interest rates, start shrinking the balance sheet that, you know, this injection was obviously severely needed at the time, but, you know, the knock on effects and things are going to start showing up if, if they didn't basically try to return to normal without all the stimulus. Now, you know what's your view on that and how things were handled
1: well they were obviously handled very poorly you know i think anyone that tells you they weren't handled poorly is i don't know i don't know where people get views like that from but like look i i think what became clear during the financial crisis was that there's no doubt that there was a crisis of liquidity but there was clearly also a solvency crisis in the sense that there was a, a bonanza of cheap credit that went on in the in the banking system, and that is a big part of what led to the boom in securitization and the issuance of all these credit default swap, all these CDOs and credit default swaps insuring the CDOs and MBS and everything else, so it was a reckless risk environment, and I understand and I actually agree with the need to have Understanding understand that there are risks associated with it, I get it, but I do believe on par we're better off having a, a central bank, but I think the central bank's role should be limited, and I think one of the functions of the central bank that makes sense is providing liquidity during periods of seasonal illiquidity or during financial crises, which are, are normal and do occur, but there needs to be some kind of check on the use of that power so that companies that lend excessively are punished and can go out of business. And that's not really what we saw. We saw that with Lehman, but that was really about it. We saw something like that with Bear Stearns. But I think it was horribly handled. You know, I'm, I can't speak to the mechanics of QE1. I know a lot of people that I, I respect have thought that QE1 was a good move. I think that whatever was done to stabilize the banking system, I think on par was a good thing. But I think that all the, the lack of punishment that came with it also, the fact that the government bailed out these corporations without actually owning the capital—you know—I think, I think clearly, this was a one-way deal, right? So that was obvious in everything, in the way that we even see it today. Neil Kashkari, head of the Minnesota Fed, and he was a charge of TARP, and he came straight from Goldman Sachs. So, you know, but this is the, at the foundation of how the Fed was born. It was born out of a coalescing interest between the banking system. And government, so it, it's not all surprising. Yeah, and then
0: moving to present day, we've seen a slew of programs. We're um, recording on Wednesday here, where Fed uh, Chairman Powell just gave a, a press conference and talking about some more, basically all types of emerging lending facilities and and also large scale asset purchases and things. We've seen them start buying the ETFs and supporting different areas of the bond market, corporate, high yield, which is somewhat unprecedented, I think. You know, you can look around the world and you look at Japan and some of these other central banks, but we're really going into some territory that we haven't been kind of stopping just short of buying equities outright. Um, As you mentioned now, we're probably also just going to be doing a certain amount of lending to companies and how that works out in the capital structure. We don't know yet whether the government will actually take equity in in the airlines and a lot of these other industries, but so, you know, when you look at the, the balance sheet now, it's grown, um, what is it, all the way up to about $6.5 trillion. And one debate that has been going on the program for a while is this whole debate about whether it's just an asset swap. So when you look at QE or, or large-scale asset purchases, basically, you know, the mechanics are pretty easy to understand. The Fed buys treasuries on the open market from these primary dealers, and they're credited with reserves, and that's kind of this big question is, OK, is that just an asset swap or will these bills, bonds and notes in treasuries be basically will they roll off or you know, will they be sold back into the market? Or will they just be kind of retired because the interest all gets remitted back to the treasury? And you've had a lot of really interesting guests on your show. And this has been touched on. What's your general sense on that debate?
1: Yeah, I think you're the most recent guest you're probably referring to is George Selgin. Yeah. Who I think did a good job in breaking that down. Look, I understand the technicality. I understand technically why people say it's not money printing, but I I think in some sense it is clearly money printing, right? Because you're creating money that didn't exist before to buy something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's largely a technicality. Yeah. And we can see also that the discretion with which the central banks decide which assets to buy with that money has expanded or the sort of selection, the pool of assets. So, And that has an impact. It has an impact on the price of those assets and it distorts markets. So you know, call it what you want, but what the Fed does when it expands its balance sheet has a material impact on prices. And it has a material impact on prices in one direction.
0: Yeah, and when you look at, I think when people start learning about finance and economics, whether you're going through college or maybe you're even um, an adult learner listening to a show like yours um, with so many great guests that you've had, um, one thing I think is surprising to people is how the Fed, actually, they don't just set the short-term rate. They don't say, okay, the rate is 2%. Instead, they conduct open market operations, the buying and selling of treasuries to, you know, to, quote, target that short-term rate. Now, there are other tools in their toolbox, as they would say, to to try to target that short-term rate. But one really interesting thing that has come up at least once or twice on your show is talking about and asking the question, why even set that short-term rate? Why not just let that rate float with the market. Let's talk about that because I'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are and also what some of the guests have said.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a great question and it's a question that has stunned me and, you know, maybe plagued me as hyperbole, but it has chased me for many years. As you said, I've mentioned it. The first time I think I ever asked a, well, I actually think I've asked guests from the very beginning, but I, in 2012, I had a former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Blinder, on my show. And when my regular host was away and I hosted the show for a week during Davos and he came in and I asked him about this. And I've asked a lot of people both in and outside of the policy establishment for an answer, and I've never gotten a satisfactory one. I asked Claudio Borio, the head of the Monetary Department for the Bank for International Settlements, for an answer. Mm -hmm. I believe I asked William White, who used to be deputy governor of the Bank of, of Canada and other folks, And I think, you know, ultimately, I think the reason is that it's a practice that they've engaged in for a long time, and I don't think there's any good reason for it. And I think that it's actually harmful, because there's no way that a board of policymakers knows better than the market what the natural rate should be. No one knows, not even the market. Mm -hmm. But I think the, you know, people smarter than me may disagree, because I've raised this point before. But I, I do think that volatility in the cost of capital in credit markets is a good thing, a certain amount of volatility. I think it keeps people honest, and it keeps people guessing, and I think that's important. I think the stability of interest rates has on par actually been a destabilizing force in the long term for markets.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, we've talked on the show about the long end of the curve and this kind of debate on how much the Fed can really control the long end, and obviously they have unlimited firepower, Um and that can be debated in real and nominal terms uh, as to what happens to the underlying currency. But they can you know, obviously print as much as they want and buy kind of where where they want and make sometimes they call it yield curve targeting and things so that's been a debate is if inflation were to kind of kick up maybe the long end of the curve the fed could lose control there that's one scenario now on the other side they've uh, obviously been trying to keep rates pinned and this has caused you know so many distortions and all across the capital structure. So when you look at the kind of the inflation component of that, where do you come down on this debate of, I mean, the word is almost, it almost doesn't even make any sense to say, you know, talk about inflation because there's so many different flavors. And as you talked in the beginning, so where do you come down on that?
1: Right. So yeah, there are different ways that we've adjusted the way that we measure inflation, consumer price inflation, traditionally the way that people think about inflation over the decades, since the nineteen seventies. And then there's asset price inflation. And so those two things I think traditionally when central bankers talk about inflation, they don't really mean asset price inflation. I think asset price inflation in central banks speak is synonymous with financial stability. Or it fits into the Financial stability part of that mandate, official or unofficial. I mean, this is the big debate. This was the debate that was raging in the years after the 2008 crisis. Are we going to have inflation? Or are we going to have deflation? Yeah. In this sense, you know, to bring it back to the 2008 crisis, what really helped me, an area of ignorance for me that the 2008 crisis helped clarify was not just the willingness of governments To act, you know, before the crisis, I didn't imagine that governments would be willing to do the types of things that they did, nor that they would be able to constitutionally. I was wrong. And then after the crisis, I came to understand what really mattered when I looked at policymakers is what could they do? What were their powers? Like what could physically can they accomplish? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of ties back at this point, because I think a lot of people that were looking for inflation, like me, were overestimating what central banks could do in the context of how monetary policy operates, which is why I think Austrian economics was so poorly positioned to explain the post-crisis period insofar as inflation was concerned. so that debate was raging then, and I think it's raging again now, and the question really is, which force is going to be more powerful, going to be more dominant over what period of time? You know, are the deflationary forces in the economy going to win out? Are they going to win out? And then let's separate these two. Are they going to win out in the asset column and in the consumer price column? Or are they Mm going to win out in either or? And I think, you know, if I had to guess, and it really is a guess, you had Grant Williams on recently. Grant always talks about this. We're all guessing. Some people's guesses are more meaningful than others. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. So like, you know, my guests' guesses are more meaningful, I think, than mine or carry more wisdom and credibility. But for what it's worth... If I had to guess, I think what we're going to see is a prolonged period of asset price deflation. I don't know how effective. I think government action will be effective. But you know, I spoke literally yesterday with a restaurant owner in New York who owns multiple restaurants as well as with a someone who is high up in the commercial real estate industry. And both of them described a really bleak picture for anything and everything connected to retail hospitality restaurants bars you name it nightclubs and we've had inflated asset values for years and years already restaurants for example were struggling to make rents so you know how is the government going to prop up let's say commercial real estate prices assuming let's say they even wanted to try to do that i don't know and so that goes back to the question of like They're definitely willing, I think, but how effective can they be? So how powerful are the deflationary forces? I think they're very powerful. I think that our economy is cratering and we haven't really surveyed the damage. So I think asset price deflation is what I would bet on for the foreseeable future until, you know, we can update our models again. I think in terms of consumer price inflation, everything that I've been seeing and looking into, including most specifically supply chains and supply networks, and this goes back years and years, the types of reorganizations that have been and I think will happen coming out of this crisis through and after are going to, on par, make prices more expensive, right? Because we've sacrificed resiliency in in favor of efficiency and lower prices. And I think what, you know, let's say in food, which is the area that I've been focusing on and I'm doing an episode on in a couple of days – with food, I think what a lot of people are going to find is that, you know what? We need to have a more resilient food supply and network and chain because we could have cheaper prices. But then if we have a crisis, we have massive shortages. And is that really worth it? Is that trade off worth it? So my hunch is that we enter a stagflationary period. But I say that with a caveat that I have to say, because it's such a neat, nice thing to say that we're heading towards deflation, It fits very nicely with what we saw in the 1970s, and a lot of smart people who I follow agree with that point of view, and I do worry a little bit if we're all in our own echo chamber once again and we're all expecting one thing, but it turns out to be something else.
0: Yeah, I think that does make a lot of sense. Now, when you look at what's coming down the pike as far as the um – um UBI and some of these other programs that are directly giving money to people. um, That's been cited as something that could become more inflationary than the Fed buying assets and buying things. What's your sense on... Some of this helicopter money and how that's kind of trending, it already was kind of trending on people's minds, and now this crisis has really brought things to the forefront. Um, now, that goes into a conversation about automation and kind of the whole, the three Ds, the demographics, debt, deflation kind of thing, too. But, you now, is that something you think could also contribute to some of that CPI
1: inflation? Yeah, so I think you're right. And I think you were right to make the point that we have to differentiate between types of inflations. You know, what really matters, what's really important is where does the money go initially? And wherever the money goes, that's where you're going to have upward pressure. And there's going to also be downward pressure. We've talked about that, the deflationary forces. But to the extent that there's upward pressure, where is that going to be? And, of course, it's logical that if you issue checks to individual people, then in that case, you're going to see a, a rise in consumer price inflation. Yeah. You know, if everyone has an extra thousand dollars in the bank account every month, you're going to see rising prices. And then it's up to statisticians and other analysts to try and figure out, well, what do we expect those people to spend money on? You know, people doing surveys and things like this. But yes, I think that this would be highly inflationary, but at least it wouldn't be contributing to higher levels of wealth inequality. And you know, I did an episode with Michael Lind on this, who was actually very informative. And help me understand this a bit better. I've traditionally thought about this in terms of wealth inequality. And he made the point that it's actually an inequality of power. And be that as it may, I think this wealth inequality dynamic has been perhaps the most catastrophic force that we've contended with over the last 10 years in particular since the crisis. And that's because of the way that we manage our bailouts. You know, we, We've been lowering interest rates over the decades in order to make it possible to continue to raise the nominal debt load, which continues to allow asset prices to increase, which allows people that are wealthy and that own assets to get wealthier, right? So we keep doubling down on all the things that can push asset prices higher while lowering incrementally the costs of carrying that capital or carrying that debt rather, right? Interest payments and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so you get to a point where it's no longer viable. And so I guess that's a way of also adding to your question and saying, I think there's a, it's a morally less reprehensible thing to do to send people checks than it is to continue to put money in the coffers of large, well connected corporations.
0: Yeah. And that brings up also a point on when you look at the actual mechanisms for what's going on with some of these programs. So you mentioned talking to someone in commercial real estate pretty high up and, and some others about some of this fallout that's happening. So I guess playing devil's advocate here, you know, there's some people that say, well, the Fed has unlimited firepower and that they're going to be able to basically go in and, and and buy, let's say someone is about to default on their rent payment, whether it's a, I guess it could be a, a, Business or a homeowner. Um, let's say it's a business. Well, the Fed could, could come in and buy that paper from whatever bank is holding it and basically just kind of take on that liability. Um, so, you know, we're, we're already seeing this where oil, Steve Mnuchin is already talking about helping out oil companies. Um, and we have some precedent for this where, you know, the government invested in, uh, was it Ford and GM? Um, and then the the story there is okay. It was actually a good investment for the American people. Now, I guess that can be debated on the semantics, but I guess you know the the quote unquote investment did return a profit. So kind of circling back to what you said of talking to that uh, guy in commercial real estate. What if the Fed just uh, keeps coming in and 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 just keeps buying and keeps being supportive? You know, in in what Is there a limit to where, you know, originally people thought that would show up in the currency like we talked about, maybe with a devaluation of the currency, but that did not happen as of yet. So how many of these can we
1: go on before something breaks? (laughs) Right. Yeah, no one knows, right? We all are asking that same question. We all know that at some point it breaks, you know, that you can't do it indefinitely. But the question really is when and for how long. And again, no one knows. You know, one way I've described the US dollar is I've described it as as the world's largest stable coin because it, <laughs> it it is artificially propped up in ways that are similar to exchange rate mechanisms or or pegs there are artificial forces that that drive up its value and support it and so when it does go what I do believe strongly is that when the dollar does go it will go very very quickly but I don't know how long we can continue to run let's say, large budget deficits, expand the national debt, monetize, bailout, because there are many reasons to own the U.S. dollar. And the extent to which the dollar can sustain its value or experience moderate amounts of inflation is contingent upon how badly everyone wants to hold it. And so, you know, there's a confidence game here also you know, so no one knows. But you know, it's conceivable to me that the dollar could remain strong for a very, 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 very long time. I'm not one of those people who's bearish on the dollar. And I'm not betting against the dollar, even though I'm describing a stagflationary environment. You know, that's an environment still that's very dangerous for people that own debt, depending on what happens to the value of their assets. So my best answer is I don't know, but I would bet that for the foreseeable future, uh, at least before we get that type of stagflationary environment, I think the dollar has a lot of room to appreciate.
0: Yeah, and today in the press conference, Powell said that he this was the biggest crisis of his lifetime and kind of the the biggest crisis that he'd ever seen. And we we already heard that from Hank Paulson back in 2008. And he kind of described it as a hundred-year storm, and this is something that we just have to kind of deal with. And it's this uh, tail risk event, and this black swan, and it's kind of like a one-in-a-hundred-year type of deal. Um, and, and it was very similar back uh, with uh, was it Greenspan with long-term capital management um, kind of coming together and, and and supporting that fund that had systemic risk you know throughout the market that could have spread. So we're, we're kind of and now we're, we're seeing this again where it's where it's you know ending this 30 year or 35 year bond bull market that still may may have a little bit more to go actually. What's your sense on on central banks right
1: now just in general in the Fed? Well, I would say stepping back I do think we're at risk of an institutional crisis of confidence. Mhm. You know, and, and that, of course, the Fed is the least exempt from that. You could imagine, and, and George Selgin and I talked about this in our episode, you could imagine that the Fed will lose its political independence in the years to come. Mm-hmm. Movements like modern monetary theory, the prescriptive side of the theory, challenge the independence of central banks. So, and there are many reasons why governments will or congressmen and women senators and potential presidential candidates will be incentivized politically to conduct you know bailouts for the people you know or debt jubilees or things like this and in in that type of environment the institutional infrastructure is vulnerable particularly because i'm also describing a much more populist environment where the demos the people kind of do an override on the controls so i i would say that Here's what I think. I've been saying for a while that I'm actually bullish for years. I'm bullish on governments. Mm-hmm. I think, or and maybe I should have been more specific when I would say that and say it now. I'm not bullish on every government. I am bullish on the U.S. government. I think that now more than ever, given the world we live in, it will prove, and I think it's proving right now, that we need some type of central broker. Right, And that's partly the role of government to help deal with problems that markets are not adept at providing solutions for. And so I think on the one hand, the demand for government will continue to grow. And at the same time, what we're seeing currently is an incompetence in government. So there's a need for government, for competent government, but the government's incompetent. And I think people in the, let's say, anarchist or libertarian community, of which I, I would at times sort of count myself as a peripheral member, have felt that that this was bearish for government. But I think the need for government is so great that regardless of the institutional crisis, government will remain powerful. What I worry about, therefore, is that the institutions of government will break and that we will see demagogues rise in the country. And so the power of government will remain or grow stronger, but the institutions that check that power are at risk of deteriorating, and that's sort of my view and my concern, and in other far more far-flung countries or even in Europe, Europe's got, again, this is something I discussed in a recent episode or a number of recent episodes, there are many reasons to be pro-Europe, historical reasons that bind the, the continent together, you know, confederal forces, and then there are reasons to be bearish, you know, things that are breaking the continent apart, and so that's kind of where I stand on that.
0: Yeah, and when you look at, you've had some really interesting guests on the program going over gold, talking about Bitcoin. When you look at some of these areas of libertarianism and, um, you know, Ben Hunn likes to call it Bitcoin kind of a, a place to warehouse the disgruntled. It's so funny. And, <laughs> and there's, there's this debate of, you know, how much will how much, you know, wh- where do these fit in? How much will they, you know, will they actually be able to kind of take power away from from the system or give people a chance to, to opt into something else? And I know on the gold side, I think it was a quote from your program, I can't remember, with J- uh, Jim Grant talking about, you know, you, he told this great story about yeah. <laughs> never stand in line to buy gold.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? he, said, never, uh, he said he learned never stand in line to buy anything. That's exactly that. Right. That was one
0: of the best quotes I heard on any podcast yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. like, I'm I'm going to write that one down. That's kind of like a Howard Marks type of quote that you would write down. It's totally. also been on your show. But it, so, you know, what's your feeling on, on talking and interviewing people talking about gold and Bitcoin and things? You know, w- will they both have their day and, and how much really will of impact will it make?
1: It's so interesting. You know, someone like Jim, who's such a wonderful man also, there's a romanticism as well in his, I think, desire to see gold succeed and in his investing in gold. I, I don't know that it's yeah. purely a rational, cold calculation.
0: That makes a lot of sense, you yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. And I think to that degree, gold and Bitcoin share a lot in common because there's a strong ideological component. I think that Bitcoin today has much more in common with gold in 2008 than even gold does. I think Bitcoin has taken the mantle of the ideological battle to unseat fiat money and take back control of the economy from the largesse of the state. I don't believe that we're going to see a Bitcoin standard or a gold standard. Mm -hmm. I think it's great that both exist. I'm a big proponent of this is not financial advice to anyone else, but I have long been an owner of physical gold. I think it's an important thing to have. I think there's 5,000 years of history that buttress some level of confidence in its value during periods of uncertainty and periods of significant inflation. I think, you know, Bitcoin's super interesting, man. You know, it's a fascinating movement. It's a fascinating movement. It's a fascinating community. The demand for Bitcoin and the support that it gets from a community of hodlers who are, you know, committed to not selling it is rather remarkable. And it does make me wonder, is it possible that something that I think in many ways is ill suited for success will nonetheless succeed? But regardless, if it does succeed, which I think it's got Plenty of opportunity to do. I think it'll happen insofar as I can see. For anything remotely the near foreseeable future, it will happen as a, as some type of financial asset. It will not happen as a monetary alternative. And it, because in order for that to happen, a there would really need to be a robust transaction network built atop a layer two solution for Bitcoin that would be safe and secure and fast i just haven't seen anything like that but i'm not an expert so i'll let others opine in that area and then i think there's a larger issue for bitcoin which is that if it will never displace the u.s dollar you know i don't foresee only in a sort of cataclysmic type world could i imagine and i'm not saying that's not possible but not in my immediate lifetime do i see something like that occurring i think you know the u.s government's way too powerful and it could just make Bitcoin illegal, and that's that, within the borders. And you know, for a country like the United States, it doesn't need Bitcoin. I understand if you're in Venezuela, that's super hard. It's super hard to shut down Bitcoin. Yeah. It makes sense. But I don't see the case by one guest I had, for example, who made the case for what he called hyper-Bitcoinization,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: is the equivalent of dollarization in some of these third-world countries. I don't see that. I think that's off. I think that's, that's fundamentally flawed.
0: Yeah, I actually agree with you on on all those points. When you take a look at gold, um, I sometimes find it a little bit funny when you have these hedge funds that have very sophisticated um, type of investment vehicles and sophisticated strategies with derivatives and uh, all these risk overlays and things, and then they'll come out with a... A report or a recommendation saying to buy gold <laughs> is, what do you think about that? And what does that say about the
1: financial system? It's such an interesting question, Ryan. What an interesting question. Wow. I'd really, you know, you give me something to think about. Well, I think the fairest answer to that is that fundamentally no one knows. Yeah. I think gold expresses or is an expression of our deep uncertainty. Yeah. You know, what is more paradoxical than owning a metal that's mined out of the ground that people have sought for thousands of years during a period when we are just doing so many incredible technological things and yet still there is the demand for this asset it gives you pause it gives you pause about a lot of the statements around financial engineering and the ability to mitigate risk through quantitative formulas you know Mm -hmm. when people at the end of the day run back and clutch the cross the cross of gold Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great question and I think at the very least I would say what it does is it reveals the extent of our humility or the humility that we should have and just how little we know about the future and about the forces interacting that drive the prices of everything that we see in markets.
0: Yeah, and when you look at China and and Russia and some of these countries, they've been supposedly buying more gold over the past number of years. And there was some talk about maybe the Chinese would partially back their currency with gold, maybe not a full backing. And then there's, if you hear a guy like Jim Rickards, he'll start talking about the SDR and how that might play a role going down the road in the future. Um, and then we've seen oil, kind of certain countries demanding maybe other currencies besides the U.S. dollar. And you can go back to the petrodollar and kind of the history there. Do you think – and then throwing one more thing in there is just kind of the gold manipulation in, in some of those markets. It seems to me with central banks, they don't really have a huge impetus or a huge kind of need to hold – to really feel like they need to back their currency because we've, you know, we've been there, done that and we've seen the effects of, of all the growth with all the liquidity and, and all the credit, um, that's kind of built up our economy. But I guess the, the counter argument there is that there will be this final reckoning and we will need to maybe partially back, um, you know one of these big currencies with something like gold or or maybe partially golden SDR. What what do you think about that that whole conversation that's that's been going on?
1: It's an interesting one. I'm familiar with Jim's theory, but it's been a while since I heard it so I might have it a little wrong, but as I understand it, I think where I would disagree with it is that I I think what Jim is suggesting is that the current international order as constituted would be able to float either a more functional, more evolved SDR or that some other internationally agreed upon currency will be able to replace the dollar. I just don't see that doesn't really make sense to me. I could see how that might happen in a completely new world. Let's say maybe whether it would be 10 years down the line or 50 years down the line, you know, after the world order has shifted either due to some Catastrophic war that quickly changes the balance of power or a gradual shift over time. But I don't see international, you know, Bretton Woods institutions having the type of credibility and support of national populations to actually institute a global policy like that. And I think nowhere is that more true than in in the United States. I think Americans are particularly skeptical of global currencies for all sorts of historical and And religious reasons. As far as gold's role, I think what's really interesting there, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Sebastian Malaby, who was my guest on episode, I believe, nine. And we we did a history of the Greenspan Fed. And I learned in preparing for that conversation, and I read Sebastian's really wonderful book, which is a, a history of Alan Greenspan and his Federal Reserve, that Greenspan had this evolution in his thinking that occurred Sometime around, I think it was sometime around the, between when he was working for the Nixon administration on the economic council and when he became fed chairman. It might have been around the time of the gold commission in the early eighties. And that, that sort of come to Jesus moment was where he, he realized whether this was, you know, how much of this was convenient thinking, you know, I don't know, but he came to the view that in order to have a gold standard, You needed to have a responsible government, right? Because if the government spent too much, then it became difficult to hold the peg. This is a problem that we see in any currency peg, not just the dollar to gold during the Bretton Woods system. But if a government is responsible, Greenspan argued, then you don't need a gold standard, right? So the thing that you need in order to make the gold standard work negates the need for the gold standard. (laughs) <laughs> so he came to that view. It's an interesting workaround, maybe to absolve him of his, of Ayn Rand's criticisms of him as an opportunist when he took the job as Fed chairman. But I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I think, and I don't remember now, it's been a while since you asked the question, so I don't know if you, your question was, could we see a gold standard? Uh, you know, some of these central banks are buying gold. I think where you can see a gold standard emerge is in countries that are trying to unseat the dollar. Right. So the U.S. has no incentive to institute a gold standard. I
0: right. think
1: where you could see something like that happening is where there is a genuine competition internationally for reserve status or for capital inflows to come into a country and the need to prove that your currency and your financial system is stable and that people should feel safe investing in your, in your economy. And I think in those types of situations, that's where gold emerges. And has value, and that's to a larger point where I have my doubts about Bitcoin, because in such an environment, let's say we experience such an environment in the coming decade, which we certainly could. I mm-hmm. just don't see Bitcoin having evolved, having the street credibility yet, you know to move beyond just this this small collective of and by small, I'm not suggesting that it's just you know crypto anarchists. Whatever the size is, it's not the size of, you know, billions of people. All the people in India, for example, that've grown up knowing that gold is worth something, or all these Chinese people that know that gold is worth something, or people in Africa, people all over the world know that gold is worth something. So I think in such an environment, gold can play a role, and it's why I doubt the value of Bitcoin in the near term as a substitute for gold or a alternative form of money in any meaningful sense.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the Greenspan era and we talked a little about, we kind of touched on through the years, you know, Bernanke and then Yellen and now we have Powell is kind of started with that Greenspan put and that was a really interesting show you did with Sebastian. Now, one thing that comes to mind is kind of this, the cloudiness around the Fed in general being owned by member banks and getting a fixed dividend. And then, and then you throw in the revolving door with, with Bernanke going to, or becoming a consultant for Citadel and Geithner going, Warburg Pincus, <laughs> tongue twister, um, private equity firm. I, now, and then with Powell, you know, he, he was at Carlisle, who knows where he'll go next. And, and not to question, I guess, they're, they're being able to kind of separate the duties and things. And, you know, it's not fair to just say, okay, that's, <laughs> They're not able to separate that, but and you've talked about the crisis of confidence that could come. Do you think that's something that we should be more concerned with, more transparency and more separation, or is just that the system we have to live with?
1: So, well, I guess you kind of the three questions there, and one of them is, you know, is this the system we have to live with, which I think is also separate from the moral question of separation. First of all, I don't think they can separate those things, and, not, and actually. I'll make it even stronger point. The reason that they're hired by the private sector is because they're not separating those two. Mm -hmm. The entire value they've accumulated has been the public sector. This is why they've gone to the private sector and commanded value. And when people move from the private sector to the public sector, it is partly because of the value that they've acquired in the private sector that helps public officials, but it helps the government in order to do the bidding of the private sector. You know, our government is held hostage and the banking system is the greatest example of all, I think, or one of the best examples, maybe not the greatest example, but one of the best Mm -hmm. of this, because it was created, as you, I think, sort of suggested or you mentioned something. This, The Federal Reserve was created as a public-private partnership. Right. It's unlike any other institution of the government. So I think there are huge conflicts of interest. I think we would be way better off if they were resolved. There's no question about it. And I think that for the foreseeable future, this is the system that we have to live under. And the only way that this will change, I think, is with some major populist demagogue. For bad or worse, I don't, you know, I think there could be good things theoretically if the person is well-intentioned, but it's very dangerous, clearly. So that's one way. Or another way is, you know, just large wholesale destruction of institutions that comes with a global reset of some sort. Again, some kind of global conflict. But that's not going to happen in all likelihood tomorrow. It's more likely to happen over the course of however many years. Yeah. And
0: transitioning kind of lastly into we've touched on some of your great episodes that you've done and I know that how much you really prepare for guests and you've posted these detailed, what looks like very detailed notes and sometimes pages and pages and you'll get your highlighter out and, and that really speaks to how the interviews come out so great. But talk a little about some of the things you've learned by interviewing these really interesting and knowledgeable people and Any takeaways just kind of from a broad view that you've uh, come to terms with, especially now during this kind of crisis that we're dealing with?
1: You know, one of the things that I've noticed is that it's made it harder for me to comment and give my opinion Mm -hmm. because having met and spoken with so many smart people and people who are experts in their fields in ways that I am not, I realize just how little I know. And I'm so sort of aware of that, both in terms of not wanting to sound stupid or not wanting to sound stupid to people that know what they're talking about, but also even even for my own sake of wanting to be honest. So Mm -hmm. in that way, it's made it harder to even do interviews like this. I've learned, you know, you mentioned Howard Marks, I think, at least once in our conversation, speaking to a guy like that is obviously humbling and you do gain a sense of the humility of people that have been in the game for a long enough time. So go back to this point about we're all just guessing, you know, Grant Williams. Yeah. We're all just guessing. I think again, Howard Marks made a point about, you know, that he, he's a great value investor, of course, and the importance of having conviction. And I think conviction comes from dedication and dedication to what? Dedication to learning and trying to understand in a deep sense what it is that you believe in. And why, Mm -hmm. you know, because a market drop of 20% or 30% or 50%, the same exact drop to one individual can be a calamity and a panic and lead to panic selling. And to someone else, it could be the greatest opportunity and the greatest good fortune of his or her lifetime. And that's a reflection or a result of the perspective. And that perspective is born from a level of conviction and that comes from putting in the work. So, you know, that's something I think I've learned. You know, I've been fortunate to, to speak with so many brilliant people. It's the financial people that are on my mind at the moment just because of this stuff. But, you know, I've spoken with people like Eugenia Zuckerman, the flutist about her Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a very human thing, you know, being in that room with her husband and watching him help her guide her through that interview without speaking, but you know, writing down things to help her remember in real time as she's going through. I remember an episode I did with one of my favorite people, Rebecca Goldstein, on moral philosophy and her passion and love for philosophy and particularly for the Greek philosophers, Plato, Socrates. I just, you know, I'm just, I'm the primary beneficiary of the value proposition of my podcast podcast which is that I expose people who are themselves experts in their field or at the very least A players or, or you know, competent at something and who are curious but don't have the time to curate and filter through all the other information in all these other fields to figure out what's the most relevant and then to contextualize it and understand it and digest it in the course of two hours. And, you know, I'm the primary beneficiary of that and I try my best to bring – those types of people, and the topics that we discussed to my listeners. Yeah, well, that, this was
0: great, Dimitri. We're going to link uh, some of these shows in the show notes and um, link your Twitter handle and some places that people can find you. But why don't you you know, give any last uh, shout-outs to listeners of how they can find you and, and also support your content? I know you have, is it still the Patreon that's up?
1: Yeah, so I've, thank you. Well, what I've done is I've decided, or I decided early on that I didn't want to take on sponsors. I've kept an open mind about it, but every time I've explored it, I have just not liked the idea of having to, you know, vet a company, because I know I'll get really anxious about it, because I don't want to make a mistake, and then have to read a script that isn't something that I came up creatively. So I, I just eschewed that model. And in return, what I've done is I've built a subscription model. So, The first, the hour-long podcast has always been and will always be free to anyone. And that's what you can find when you go on the main podcast page. And the first hour is always structured to be self-sufficient. But I do my best heading into the overtime, which is the second hour usually. It's 30 minutes to an hour long to kind of move it into second gear. And I always find that the overtimes are oftentimes better than the full episodes. And I make those available for a subscription of... Ten dollars a month, and then transcripts and rundowns are also available for tiers of fifteen to twenty dollars. The rundowns were what you were talking about. Those are sometimes up to twenty-five pages long. It depends, or twenty-six, but that's basically like my brain on a page. And that term comes from television. I used to have a television show, and we would create these rundowns every morning of the show. So I use that to fund the program, and it's done really well. We broke a thousand subscribers last week, which I'm very proud about you know a thousand paid subscribers at ten to twenty dollars on a podcast is unique that is unique for a model that isn't looking for donations which is you know the way in which i use patreon yeah that's how we fund it that's patreon.com slash hidden forces you can also check out the website at HiddenForces.io, and you can also subscribe to our mailing list through our website and uh, you can follow me on twitter at covering delta And you can also follow the show at Hidden Forces Pod on Twitter as well.
0: Great. We're going to link all those in the show notes so people will be able to uh, click on it and make it really easy to find. And, Dimitri, we really appreciate you coming on today.
1: Thanks, Ryan. It was a pleasure being on. Great questions.
0: Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at JellyDonutPod. Or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.